You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It's long-form one-on-one conversations with veterans in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a platform for veterans to create compelling live theater and events. My guest today was Matt Smythe, who um, I would meant to talk to a couple weeks ago. I got sick as a dog with COVID, and he was, uh, as you'll hear me thank him repeatedly throughout the episode, he was very flexible in adjusting his schedule until I was able to conduct the interview without coughing and hacking my way through it. Um, Matt was, uh, I mean, I think I've done enough interviews with Dead Reckoning writers that sometimes I kind of, you know, get a heads up that their that the book is coming out or something like that. Matt's I, I didn't know. Um I knew of him. I uh, I think articles of his I don't know. I'd i tr- I've been tracking articles of his, I think, from Free Range American. And uh he I, I knew he was somebody, but I was not tracking that he was writing a book. I was not tracking he was a poet. Um so when his book came out I was like, oh shit, let me get caught up on this dude. Um, I really liked his book, especially as I tell him in the episode, because he's not, he doesn't have the same interests as me in, in many respects. I'm, I like the outdoors. I wish I was more of an outdoorsman. I, it just is not, it's never reached the top of my triage list, um, of priorities, but he is. And, um, obviously that's his day job and it's meant an awful lot to him. So to hear a lot of poetry, to read a lot of poetry about, you know, fishing and uh, the outdoors and the Mississippi and all that. I mean, that's not stuff I I I would have written. <laughs> Let me say that. Um, but I think anytime you're reading somebody's heartfelt, um, insightful well-curated words about a subject that they love, if they're a good writer, it really doesn't matter whether or not it's a subject matter that you care about, relate to, understand. They will make you understand it. And I want to read um, one poem of Matt's. I compliment him on it towards the end of the episode, but I think it's good for you guys to hear. It's called When You Hold an Alaskan Salmon. You are the closest you'll ever be to your wild soul. You are distilled to instinct's base pair. Adrenaline floods the void. The bronchiolus in your lungs wait on bated breath. Bones and mountains and children stop aging. It imprints in the freestone of your arteries. The strata of belief finds its unchelated order. Its alchemy transforms the withered to wholehearted. You collect on childhood's investment. Your prayer is spoken into thin air. Your thanks are the ground beneath you. You're never more vulnerable. You are singled out. Vernacular matters little. You are a foreign imposition. You are the alien. Suddenly, privilege makes sense. Subsistence equals respect. Division relents. You see color for the first time. You meet humility. It swallows the folly of greed. It rewilds what's been stolen. You want for nothing. 
You're willing to listen, wounds, scab, taut, heal, but scar. You have your answer. It is a beginning and an end. You remember stories you'd forgotten. Self-sufficiency's lightning bolt interrupts doubt. Abundance becomes important. It has already fed generations. Nature gives you her full attention. The sky is wide and wider and wider still. Songs of cultures crescendo in the river's ribcage. Sandhill cranes roar from beyond the alders. Brown bears count the hundreds of million pulses. Promises are made and made good. It's mine and yours. Trade wild abandon. You never return to who you were. As somebody that has literally never been fishing in my life, uh, I've eaten a salmon or two in my time, but I mean, fishing is not my thing. Uh, that's a pretty goddamn good uh, uh, walk in someone else's shoes. And um, I think that gives you a pretty good taste for the quality of writer Matt is and the degree of sensitivity with which he writes about the things that he loves. There's a lot of stuff in here that is not related to fishing or the outdoors, I should say. His um, writing about his time in Germany and the army and his army time in general. Um, you know, it, it is uh, a full 360 degree view of a man's life, but certainly there's a lot of outdoor stuff, especially as his life moves on. Anyway, it's a great book. Um, and I was glad Mac could come on and talk about it. Uh, I think there's a couple of things I need to mention. Oh, well, one little trivial piece that I realized after the episode, and I'm going to say it now because, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I, I believe I brain fart relatively infrequently on this show. But during the course of the show, I referenced uh, Dead Reckoning's uh, Keith Dow. And when I mentioned him in the show, I realized I said Ken Dow. And that's because I went to high school with a guy named Ken Dow. And so every time I see K Dow or think of a Dow whose first name starts with K, it's always going to be Ken Dow. Um, anyway, so I apologize to Keith Dow. When I said that, I realized that after I was like, did I say Ken Dow? I'm a fucking idiot. Anyway, uh, so there's that. That's a little mea culpa. Uh, other things you should know. Um, we talk an awful lot. I mean, Matt has had a, a, a very interesting, colorful life. Um, certainly a lot of that's captured in the book, but we talk about a lot else. I mean, we talk about his diagnosis of, diagnosis of Tourette's. We talk about his time in the army. Um, he got out in 97 before the wars, yet he lived in DC. His windows rattled when nine 11 happened and the planes hit the Pentagon. Um, you know, which there's an awful lot of stuff that we, that, that we talk about and a lot of subject matter. So I think you guys are in for a real treat. I had a great time talking with him, and, um, yeah, looking forward to see what comes next for him. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director at Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is The Savage Wonder of Matt Smythe. Welcome to the show, Matt. I appreciate the invite. Well, I mean, it's it's an invite that's... Uh, 
You've been like knocking over a Coke machine. We've had to go back and forth a whole bunch of times, dude. I'm so sorry. And thank you so much for being um, a mensch and letting me get over COVID before we talk. Um, oh, don't worry about it. What Glad a fucking mess. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might cough and hack occasionally now. I've like got a bunch of lozenges here and I've got like water at the ready and everything. I did like prep, you know, physically for this show, which is starting <laughs> anyway. Uh, but dude, I'm so excited to talk to you about this. It's been a while since we've had a new dead reckoning author come on the show. And um, that's always a fun adventure for me. I'm going to dive right into the deep end of the pool. All right. um, in the book, there are a few mentions of death people's death that you saw occasional musings on possibly yours but there's not a lot on it which i thought was interesting in a book titled revision of a man because it seems like that would be an all-encompassing scope of your life and then possible projection to the future so let me just um throw this out here and i might be fishing up a completely barren creek on this (laughs) what do you think about death are you afraid of it? Do you think about it? Is it something you do muse about, or are you completely wedded to the present? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I do think about death. Um, I think we, I think there are reminders. Like right now, um, you know, I'm, I'm. There's, there's, there was a recent death of someone that I knew um, in the black rifle coffee community, uh, Neil Curry. Um, I had just been, I had, I had, I had met him up in Alberta on a black bear hunt mm. and, um, had the chance to, you know, spend some time with him out there. And that was the first time that I'd met him. I knew of him, uh, prior to that, but, um, I had met him up there and then, you know, just getting news, um, on September 10th, reading that he, he's no longer with us um you know it really that it, it struck a chord he's a he's a, a former ranger um and i guess struggled mightily with you know his his uh time in combat and what have you um so you know that's that's sort of a reminder you know that life is short and um that nothing really is i guess is given no no um, no tomorrow is a given. Um, I'm also kind of at a point, you know, I just turned 50. So there's a, uh, there's a level of, you know, kind of introspection about your own, mm-hmm. your own mortality. Nothing, nothing too terribly deep with regards to myself other than, well, hell, I'm starting on the second, second half of my life, you know, right. um, and I'm a half century old. You know, there's the things that come with that, but, um, you know, my parents are, they're, they're still pretty young, but they're getting into their mid seventies. Um, you know, I think about, you know, the relationship that I have with them and every now and again, I think about shit, it's going to be, it's going to suck when they're gone, you know? Um, so it's it's kind of cyclical, you know. Yeah. There, there there seems to be like ten year periods that all of a sudden we just we start to lose people that are around us or people that we know, um, whether it's from age or you know people that are battling you know lost a battle with cancer or different things along that line. And 
Um, so, you know, this seems, we seem to be in kind of that, that, that 10 year cycle where there's reminders like that. Um, for me personally. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I don't think I'm, I'm not scared of death. Um, I think if I think, if, if I really think long and hard about it, it, I think, you know, it would really suck for the people that I leave, um, you know, that there definitely would be a, would be a hole. Um, but I don't, I don't fear it because I'm, I know that I'm, I'm at a point now in my life and I've been working, you know, I've been sober for the last four years, but I actually just uh, had my, my four year anniversary uh, September 4th. Wow. Congrats. Um, but it's, I've really started to, um, to take every day that I'm given and really pay attention to it. So I'm not, mm. I'm trying to do as much as I can with my life every day. And if, you know, if the next day doesn't come, then, I mean, it, it, at that point I'm gone. So it's not yeah, what matters right. to me anymore. Right. right. But it, it does, it does definitely help knowing that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing everything that I can be, you know, the best dad, you know, the best partner, best um, friend, writer, I mean, dog owner, <laughs> um, you know, that I can. So um, let me I, ask No, no, no. Uh, That's that's exactly where I was going with that. And I'm going to ask you a more selfish question from your perspective, Um, because obviously as a father, as a husband, as a friend, I mean, those are um, the second and third order effects of your death, I think, make a lot of sense and that you would think about others and how that would affect them. But as an artist, just thinking selfishly for a second, do you feel like you'd be leaving a lot on the table. Do you feel like, Hey, I've put out a lot of stuff. I'm proud of it. And if I were to go tomorrow, I'd, I'd be comfortable with it. Or are you like, God damn, that would suck. I've got a lot more shit to say. And I really, that would really piss me off to leave a lot unsaid. It's interesting. I think that, I think that when, when, if I was to say, man, I'd be leaving a lot on the table. I think it's a bit, it's a bit presumptive. It would be a bit presumptuous on my part <laughs> only because, I mean, I've been fortunate to have um, had the impact that I have so far in my life on others. Um, it's not necessarily something that I set out to do. Mm. Uh, it's something that has been, I guess, a byproduct of, you know, of my actions and um, both good and bad, you know, um, mm-hmm. it hasn't all, it hasn't been all sunshine and roses, the effect I've had on people. So, <laughs> but more recently, you know, in, in the last, I'd say like decade, the, the impact I've had has been, it, it's, it's been meaningful um to a lot of people which comes as a bit of a surprise to me but Hmm. it's also it's also very much an honor um so 
for me to for me to say, well, if I knew I was, you know, going to go tomorrow or whatever, you know, to say that I'd be leaving a lot on the table. I'd like to think that I've got a lot more to say. I've got a lot. I've got, you know, I'd like to think that I'm going to grow more as a writer, that I, that my, you know, my perspective is going to continue to be valid or even more so, or, you know, things like that. But I, but I don't, I don't know, you know, so I don't know that that that's, that's a given. So for me, the, where I am now and the impact I've had, the things that I've accomplished, the people that I've become close to or that I've, you know, made a difference in, in their lives. I'm 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 content with where I am and who I am. Mm-hmm. Um I'd like to think that I would, you know, that there'd be a lot more, but again, it's something that I I think that that's a bit presumptuous on my on my part to say, oh well shit if i die now then i won't have xyz impact on the road um no that makes that makes a lot of sense um i want to then back up and talk about where revision of a man came from did you how early on did you think it was going to become a book obviously it was compiled from a lot of other writing you've done in other magazines but at what point did you think hey this this needs to be a book this needs to be a cohesive piece Oh, I guess I've, I've always kind of been the, the, uh, swing for the fences, starry eyed writer. Um, maybe not so much starry eyed as much as I've been, I've been very ambitious, um, and very, um, also impatient. Mm. So I've always been, I've always pushed for greater and greater, um, I guess results with mm. my writing than um from early on, then I really my my time in behind you know with a, a pen in hand or behind a keyboard um that I've had as far as that experience is concerned. I have always thought, you know, like I had um I had told Casey Knight on um uh, veteran made podcast. I had mm-hmm. told him that, I, you know, right off the bat, I had applied, you know, sent work to the New Yorker and to, you know, the Atlantic and was just, you know, it's swinging for the fences. Right. Sure. Sure. Thinking that my stuff was, was at least worthy of them to consider when it really wasn't, <laughs> you know, and I had a lot more work to do, a lot more growth that I had to, I had to experience. Um, a lot more life that I needed to experience. Um, so, what, sorry, let me let me cut you off for one second. When would you, when did you submit that? The what's that? The book? When when did you submit your work to the New Yorker and the Atlantic? Oh, so I was in grad school. I was in grad school for poetry, uh, okay. two thousand to two thousand four. And so you, re- was, you really thought yeah. you had that much more life? to go through before you were able to be a better poet at that point? Yeah, I had just, I had just finished a, um, I had gone from uh, biochem and forensics as a, Hmm. as an undergrad. Uh, I changed majors spring semester of my graduating 
my, my graduating semester from undergrad, I changed majors three weeks into the semester from biochem and forensics to creative writing and swapped some classes and then finished an entire creative writing uh, English degree in a year, graduated the following year, went to grad school at George Mason specifically for poetry. Creative writing and writing poetry, you know, and the study of poetry, you know, from a proper standpoint um, or an academic standpoint and writing it was still was brand new at that point. Um, I'd written a lot, you know, prior to that, just in general, I always wrote, but it was, it was, I mean, it was Hallmark verse at best. Sure. Sure. Um, so I had really only started to really work on my craft and started to really embrace myself as a, as a writer, as a poet, um, at that point. So that, that for me was, that was the beginning. Um, and that was when I started to, you know, I, I had lived a lot of life prior to then. Right. So I had a lot of ambition to begin with, but it was from a writing standpoint. That's when I started, I was like, okay, well, I like what I write. I think it's strong. I'm going to send it, you know, out and we'll see what happens. Um, so for me, it's, um, I was always trying to to sort of punch above my weight, even though, you know, I wasn't successful uh, for a long time. So, I mean, the obvious question is, why the hell did you pick a grad degree in poetry specifically? Mm-hmm. Like, what what was what was the genesis of that? I mean, you must have just been just loved poetry to the exclusion of money and, you know, fame <laughs> and fortune. Right. 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 Well, I, I guess I, I, I chose the MFA in poetry because it was a terminal degree and I wanted to teach at the collegiate level. Uh, um, so it carried the same weight as a PhD. Um, in so far as there's no higher degree than an MFA specifically with poetry. Um, unfortunately I wound up, I had to take, um, I had to take a break halfway through the program. Um, I essentially had a, I had a, I had a mental breakdown and I had to take a year off and, um, wound up going back and finishing my MA instead of my MFA. Um, so my degree is in, my degree is in, in English, um, with a a focus in poetry and I didn't wind up getting a job teaching. Um, I wound up getting a job in advertising, uh, as a business development manager and account exec and then eventually through the years have made my way to the creative side but um but yeah that was my that was the extent of my yeah you know sort of a plan moving forward was oh, i want to teach yeah 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 sure so there was like a, a an actual game plan going into poetry there was light at the end of the tunnel like um, yeah, in, in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, there was, a, yeah, there was yeah, some yeah. sort of a game plan, as as tentative as it as it was. What? Um, I, mean, I guess there's no non-blunt way of asking this, but um, what happened with the mental breakdown? Why was it because you realized you'd chosen poetry as an MFA? <laughs> <laughs> Where did that come from? No, I wish it was. I wish it was that simple. <laughs> um, I have, um. I have uh, 
was diagnosed with Tourette syndrome when I was 39, uh, long after my graduate degree, long after my breakdown. Um, I was, according to the neurologist, I was the oldest undiagnosed case he has ever seen or read of. Fuck. Um, I never knew what I'd have. I'd had ticks my entire life. Um, and never really knew, never knew what it was. Uh, the other parts of things that come with Tourette's like the, you know, the, at least the, the form that I have this full blown Tourette's is, um, a major depressive disorder, um, anxiety disorder as well. Um, there is addiction and impulse control issues, some OCD, and then ticks on top of it. Yeah. So I had been to see a therapist for depression, uh, you know, knowing that they're, I felt low and what have you and went to see a, actually a psychiatrist to go, um, talk about depression, tried some meds, things along that line. They didn't, they didn't work. As I found out later, this was all before I was diagnosed with Tourette's. So, um, I'd been suffering from all these things from, you know, probably just pre-junior high, all the way up through my time in the service, all the way up, you know, getting married, we're getting ready to have our first child. And then we're in, you know, I was in grad school at the time and, um, and it just, everything just came to a head. Medication wasn't working. Um, I found out later that, you know, medication for depression actually exacerbates anxiety and Mm -hmm. the tics as well. So you treat one thing, make something else worse. Gotcha. Um, so I had a number of years of just wrestling with, you know, trying to, trying to balance medication with not taking medication. I was self-medicating with, um, I drank a ton, um, which, you know, is part of the, addiction and impulse control issue yeah um and just behavior in general so uh that's really that that breakdown that i had it was uh we were we were expecting our first um the beginning of the semester that i was in grad school and that i was also teaching there was 9-11 and we were inside the beltway. We were, I mean, as the crow flies, we were, well, maybe, maybe three miles from the Pentagon, less than that. Yeah. Our windows rattled when the plane hit the wow. Pentagon. Yeah. So we were that close. Um, school was overwhelming. I was doing a freelance construction job on the side to make money there was just everything just came to this unbearable head and i wound up having to take a step back um from school and teaching and stuff like that but that was where you got diagnosed and where finally started to get some clarity actually it wasn't until i didn't get diagnosed with tourette's i was 31 at the time i didn't get diagnosed for another eight years wow so 
but you found enough coping mechanisms to be able to get through the next eight years anyway and kind of get back on track a little. Yeah. I mean, I actually, the coping mechanisms worked and they didn't. I had, um, there were points after I had gotten, we moved home and I was working in advertising that I just, I had reached a point where, you know, these commutes that I would have back and forth from the city, you know, I'd be coming home at nine o'clock at night from work, you know, there by eight in the morning, coming home at, you know, after nine that I was, I had thoughts of suicide. I had thoughts of like, who would miss me if I drove my truck into this bridge abutment, you know? Um, So I struggled, I struggled mightily for a lot of years And then when I finally, my ex-wife, um, went, we had already had, now we had three kids and, um, she noticed that my tics were getting worse and that I was just getting more and more just down. And she said, you know, we need, why don't we go talk to a neurologist? There might be something bigger going on. You know, it could be a tumor. It could be who knows what. Right. And he, he diagnosed within 30 seconds, he was like, you have, you have a very severe case of Tourette's. And it was like the most um, validating and the most debilitating diagnosis at the same time. Sure. Because I finally knew what I'd been fighting against for my entire life. But by then I was like, well, shit now i've got you know i've got this this thing and medication is going to help part of it but not the other part of it and so i wound up i didn't i didn't get on medication it was sort of a the devil you know um but i didn't change any of my habits i kept drinking kept partying with friends you know um burning candles burning my candle at both ends um that marriage ended the second marriage ended um and that one i actually had ended because i got sober um and realized we just didn't have anything in common after that so um so yeah there's i mean there's a lot of years that sort of pass in between but now you know being being sober i've i've actually worked out um a regimen with regards to um to meds so now i'm managing the depression and anxiety the ticks are the ticks they are what they are yeah um you know there's not much you can do about that and fight the other things as well so so now instead of operating from a you know this insanely wide swinging field of view between you know mania and depression now i'm sort of i'm in this middle ground where i still kind of bounce back and forth but it's not nearly as drastic so everything is far more manageable what did you lose with undiagnosed tourette's when you look back and go if you had known that earlier are there opportunities you would have been able to take advantage of are there mitigating steps you could have taken that would have led to better results or career paths or anything like that? Was there any, any deep regrets because you didn't know that you had Tourette's? 
No, honestly, I think that I think that my the challenges that I faced mentally, I think wound up being the driving force for me pushing so hard to mm. overcome various challenges and boundaries. I think I I think that the struggle that I had, um, the experiences, the failures, the successes, I think it, I'm not going to attribute it completely to the fact that, you know, what it is that I, you know, the, the struggles that I had, but I will say that it definitely played a role. Um, just, you know, when I, when I was motivated, when I was on that manic side of the house and I was up through the roof in the stratosphere and nothing was going to stop me. I accomplished a lot, you know, during yeah. that time yeah. that made up for the times when I was, you know, inert um, and wasn't feeling it and struggled to get work done, um, struggled to get anything done during the day, you know? Yeah. So um, I think it's all, it's all part of who I am. It's part of my, part of who I, I was coming through. And I think now, it's given me, it's giving me a, you know, um, I guess a, a really good perspective on what it takes to get, you know, to, to persevere and to get things, to get things done, to accomplish things. So. And, and you kind of built your operating system with that baked in. So now you have an operating system that, you know, works because you've managed to surf through 50 years of life with right. it right and it's like now right. you know you have you have really good data on what works for you and what doesn't i have lots of data for sure yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. um because you wanted to know that poem obviously stuck out to me in the collection i haven't yeah. taken my prozac in two days expect anger expect me to grip my teeth expect frustration it's a great fucking piece um when did you write that did you know about tourette's then was this before during after this was during uh when I was in grad school. Um this was it was I had there was a there was a few pieces, a few things that I wrote that were where I was trying to exercise demons, you know. Um where I knew I couldn't talk to my then wife about how I was feeling. Um, I couldn't explain why I was acting the way that I was. I couldn't, it just, we didn't have that kind of relationship, that kind of communication. And this was a way for me to at least say it, you know, Yeah. Um, yeah, to get it out and to make sure that it was said. And that piece has, it has not changed from, hmm when i wrote it in 2001 um it's the exact same wow. the exact same thing that i wrote down you know back then well that's that actually makes me one of the questions i'd had when i was reading this it seems like a lot of these poems were written around the time 
of the events that you're describing. Is that right? Or was a lot yeah. of it from memory? So then, I mean, so then when you put it together as a compilation, did you, when you were editing, did you feel like some of it was dated where you're like, oh yeah, this captures this accurately, but I'm kind of past that now. So I'll put it in as kind of an archival thing, but it's not really me anymore. Or was it all of it still relevant? Was all of it still had that immediacy? So there's, I treated, I treated poems um, and work from the past in two ways. One was they stayed as they were, unless there was something egregious that I was like, I just, I, the, the OCD in me and the, yeah. the, you know, where I am as a writer, I just, I can't leave that like that. Um, but they stayed pretty much as they were when I wrote them. The other was I went back and I looked at other pieces and in some cases I found um, like two poems that actually should have been in like one, mm. or I found that there were pieces that needed a, that needed to come full circle with a perspective, my perspective now. And so there was some revision in that sense. Um, so it's kind of a mix. There are some poems that were written, you know, way back that have been, uh, revised and, and, and touched again with perspective from today. Uh, and there are others that just, you know, they stayed as is the, um, in, in, an example of revised deal was, Deal has long been sort of a, a really kind of like the 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 most accurate self portrait mm. of who I am and of my my struggle, right? Where what I've come through, and what have you, and and so that poem stayed sort of um, stayed put for a long time. When I was going back and I was putting the book together, I had a, um, I had another poem that it was a, I didn't, it didn't even have a name. It was just a number because it was part of my master's thesis. And my master's thesis was a single poem in 52 sections mm -hmm. modeled after Whitman's song of myself. Um, and so this particular one was like a, it was like a, a prose poem and it was about the gator snatching a deer from the shoreline that wound up being part of, um, being part of, uh, I believe it was, as part of the deal. Um, the reference within it. Um, yes, it is in deal. Mm -hmm. So I once yeah, had once a gator, gator by the head, yep. flailing into a small lake. Um, that I realized that that needed to be in this, and so I worked it in. And because of that, I actually found the last lines of the poem um that weren't there uh, yeah, to begin sure. with sure um so things like that are throughout 
you know, with some of the older ones there, you know, throughout the the book, there, there are spots that have been retouched or there might've been, you know, combination combining of a couple of different works. Uh, I'm going to ask you kind of a, on a really broad question, I guess, who's revision of a man for like, when you think of your reader, I mean, especially, um, coming out of two intimate, you know, relationships like a marriage, you mm-hmm. have kids. Do you think about them reading this? Do you think like, Hey, these are the words that I, this is, this puts words to emotions. I couldn't wrap my head around to verbalize, or is it for a, a different kind of reader, a veteran, uh, an artist, a, another poet who, who do you see reading this? Who did you have in mind when you were compiling it? I think that the first, I think I'm, I was the audience Mm. really. Um, There's, it's not a, it wasn't a selfish need as much as it was. I need to put this together in order to be able to move past and to, now, having said all this, now there's other things that I can explore, other things that I might need to say, um, mm. or other boundaries that I can I can push. Um, I, so I think that it was it was primarily for me. Um, from there, I think a lot of my writing really is I from a, you know, writing for posterity, I think is for my kids. You know, I, I know that both my boys have read the book and have, you know, have responded and responded, you know, positively to it. And I think it's given them a new perspective on Mm. on me and who I am and what I've fought through and, you know, my life coming up you know, that sometimes, you know, you don't get the opportunity to really talk to your kids on that level. Um, And mine are older. I mean, my youngest is 17. He's finishing his senior year of high school. Um, And then I've got one that lives in Salt Lake, who's 19, who's just out there living and working. And then my daughter is going to be finishing up her senior year of college. So that those types of conversations are not necessarily you don't always get the opportunity to have those. Um, so I think some of it was, was for them uh, as well. And then I also, I knew better than to think that the work wouldn't speak to other people that might be, you know, dads or veterans, people that just struggle with, you know, with depression or different things along that line. Um, I had produced a, a film back in 2013 called a deliberate life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that. Yeah. That was sort of a, at the time, I mean, it was a, it was a bit of a watershed moment for me when it came to realizing, you know, the, I guess the impact that I have on other people's lives or the stories about how my life actually, and others like me, how much there's a universality that's out there, how much people need to hear in some cases, 
you're okay. You're not alone. You know, you're not the, you're not the only one that's suffering. Here's my example. You know, um, it was essentially me verbalizing that. So there's, I knew that by writing this book, there was a lot of people from, you know, the time of the film and a lot of people that I knew, a lot of friends that I have and stuff like that, that I knew the book would resonate with. Um, So I think just getting that out in the world was, that was my, for me, it was just a, it was a big step to be able to finally tell myself you don't have to again, like pushing, always pushing, always trying to to overcome, you know, obstacles from publishing individual poems to publishing stories and magazines and different things like that. The more success that I had as a writer, there was always this overwhelming sort of I need to write a book. I need to write a book. Well, the book was already there. Yeah, I just needed to spend the time and really sort of hammering everything into into shape. And so by getting that, by accomplishing that, by doing that, and not just doing it for the sake of doing it, but actually telling a story by putting together a, you know, a coherent single work, um, I was finally able to let that rest in my own head. Um, and now you know, I'm, I'm already thinking about some other, some other projects, whether it's, you know, short stories or who knows, who knows from here, you know, but the door is open, which is. Yeah. Did this have to clear out the carbon for you? Was it like that you had to unencumber yourself of these stories in order to move forward and do more work? I think so. Yeah. I think I've talked about them enough. That's kind of the other thing is I've, I've, I think I've talked about them enough with enough people and have talked about my past, you know, with friends or family, you know, just other times just in, in, in stories with acquaintances or at, you know, hunting camp or fishing or different things like that. I think this was, this was a way for me to kind of make, make things concrete. So it's kind of, it's funny to me um, to hear you talk about yourself as a writer with your ambition and kind of this aggressive, aggressively ambitious mindset because the content is chill in so many cases. Mm-hmm. You know, there's kind of the wistful sense of like, hey, this is me and, and some of the younger writing and all that, which I want to ask you about separately. But, you know, so much of it is, you know, the outdoors life, fishing and all that. But yet <laughs> it's like you're like rapidly ambitious about getting that stuff out there. Do you find that that is that two halves of your personality or is that all come from the same source that the same thing that drives you to push and to write and to create and push your work to the highest level it can be is the same thing that requires you to go to the outdoors and to fish and to have solitude? I think it is. I think it's two sides of the same coin. Um, I think without, if I didn't, if I didn't have, you know, hunting and fishing in my time outdoors and just, or even just, you know, a quiet time, um, even more so than writing actually, which is kind of an interesting dynamic, but I think if I didn't have that 
I think life would be very, very overwhelming. And I, I'm not positive what I would, um, what I would temper that with. Um, I mean, I have a lot of interests. I have a lot of things that I enjoy doing, but there's nothing that really rises to the level of, you know, being in a tree stand or Mm. on a river or in a boat, you know, things like that, being outside in nature. Um, Even if I'm out shoveling and freezing my ass off, you know, there's, there's, there's a, a vital, a sort of a vital nature to it. So does that make it hard for you to write to all of a sudden confine yourself, sit in front of a computer and all that instead of being outside? Or do you find it's an easy transition writing is writing has always been in spite of how much i've um worked on it and i've spent just honing my craft finding my voice and and you know just building the all these years of just practice and then practical application in, in you know certain instances. Writing is still very fucking hard. Uh, it's still you know. really, really difficult for me. And I it's it's not for a lack of things to write about. I've got plenty of ideas and you know opinions and things like that. I think that there's just there are there are times when poetry when you need poetry to say what you need to say. And then there are other times when poetry is just, it's forcing a square peg into a round hole. Um, And that I wind up, maybe it's more of a, a short story instead. But even then it's it, for me, it's like sitting down, taking the time. I really haven't done that since grad school. Um, I just have had, I've had so much that has taken precedence, you know, over, you know, I always, when I was teaching in grad school, I always preached, you know, from a writing standpoint, take time to be silent with yourself and just write, write about anything, just let things out and just write, clear your mind. You'll be amazed what you wind up writing yourself into, it's like cobbler's children, you know, that don't have shoes. I just, yeah. I have the hardest time sitting, dedicating like a half hour to just being productive. Mine, again, I think it's, it's probably just a force of habit, but mine, my process is almost like fits of, fits of manic, you know, where everything is coming the emotion is there. The motivation is there. And it's not that I'm waiting for it. It's that sometimes it just hits and I write, I'll write things out of my system. Um, or I'll start on a project where I know that at least I put a stake in the ground with a certain emotion mm-hmm. that if I do have time or another inclination, I can come back to it and settle right back into that emotion or that space. So. Um, yeah, I'm writing is just it's it is it's it it's extraordinarily difficult for me. Are you, so I take it you're not a daily writer. You don't you're not one of those people that like hey, got to 
5 a.m. I got to start churning out something. Well, it's funny because we're in my my vocation, my job at free range is I'm my I'm required to write a story a day. So I am writing every day. I'm writing for eight hours a day, you know, um, to include research and photo right. searches and all that other good stuff. Sure. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I actually, I, I write constantly and it makes it difficult, you know, to write from a personal standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just because, you know, you get done with the last thing you want to do if you're shoveling shit all day when you get home is, you know, shovel shit in your own backyard. So it's true. Yeah. If you were a bricklayer all day, it might be a nice change of pace to come home and write. But when you're right. fucking writing all day already, yeah, that's right. I, I can absolutely see that. Um, as I often do, I did a bad job of setting up your whole narrative. So let's. Let's go to let's go to the. I I want to dive into the deep end, but but I should go back and and we should set some foundational stuff. When did you start writing in life? Were you an early? Were you a kid that like liked to write, that liked ideas, that liked stories, or did that come later? I think my I think my earliest memory of writing and being proud of something. Um, again, aside from like rhyming couplets of Hallmark verse in my mom's birthday or Christmas or whatever card. Right. I wrote a short story and it was for Halloween in school. And I think it was sixth grade. And I wrote a short story was in my handwriting and it had to be like a a horror story and turned it in. And I actually won the story writing contest. And it was, it was, I think it was the front of one page in my very tight, deliberate cursive. Um, and I forget what I, I forget what I won, but I just remember I, I won. And I was just like, this is awesome. Do you remember and what I it was about? It. Oh, it was like a haunted house or something. Okay. Somebody getting, somebody getting killed in a haunted house. Okay not terribly original but it i guess my my uh my description and my you know it it, it was thorough enough it was it was more thorough than any other fucking sixth grader did i i guarantee that uh, but um i think that was probably my first my first memory of it of writing and enjoying it um after that it was just kind of hit or miss and it really wasn't until um, I changed until I changed majors and um, realized that I had a lot of life that I could dip into mm. to write about. Um, I had got, I, I mean, I had, I don't even know if I necessarily like, was hot on trying to get into writing as much as I wanted to get back into, I wanted to read poetry. I wanted to read, you know, there's sci-fi, there was uh literature. Um, what is it? Literature after the 1950s, there was a bunch of different, uh, a bunch of different classes that just sounded interesting to me. 
Um, but there was a poetry workshop as well. And I just, th- that just sort of that, plus the beat poets, just kind of the tumblers clicked. And I was just like, I really like this a lot. And then I just was like all in on, on poetry. And because I had so much, so many different experiences in my past, it was, I had this great well of, of things to draw from that, you know, other undergrads who I was older than, um, they didn't necessarily right. have life, right. you know? So, so what, where, I guess there's no other way to ask this than where did that come from? Because to me, I would think if you're just, I mean, where had you been reading? Were you a reader? Were you somebody that had spent the time that you weren't writing, reading a lot that you knew enough to appreciate the B poets or know of the B poets and have that mean something to you? Because it seems to me like if you're looking back and I want to talk about your time in the army and all that, but when you're looking back in your life experiences, the first thing that would jump into most people's minds is write a no shit there I was story, right? And do something nonfiction. But you, you were thinking of poetry. Why did, why did your brain go there? What was it appealing about that to you? The, the only experience I had with poetry prior to that was like reading Spoon River Anthology or, mm-hmm. you know, some other stuff in English class. I mean, a lot of it was Shakespeare, which I could take or leave. Um, I didn't have the same literary experience in school as a lot of my contemporaries did. I don't believe I didn't read Catcher in the Rye until I got to college. I, I had like, I just wasn't, I wasn't, I was a bad student in high school Mm. or a poor student in high school. Um, I didn't have the, um, attention span, you know, again, I had the whole Tourette's thing going on. And, and so I'm sure some of that was at play, but I was kind of a bee on a posy. So I didn't have the, I didn't, I didn't know of Sylvia Plath. I didn't really know of, or had read on the road. I didn't know about Kerouac or Ginsburg and no, you know, about a lot of, a lot of the writers and sort of these icons that, that other English majors and writers seemingly cut their teeth on and were bringing as this mantle of here's my inspiration, you know, I think it was, I think it was the sheer surprise of coming across the, like being introduced to the beats as well as like uh, Thomas Pynchon and mm. um, uh, who else there? Um, Kurt Vonnegut there. I mean, there was a bunch of other writers at that point. We had a very good literary community in my undergrad and then in grad school as well. So Michael and and um, Stephen Dunn, uh, um, Galway Canal, all these other, these fabulous writers, Tim O'Brien, mm-hmm. there was just, they were sort of in the, the universe that surrounded the places that I was at. And so it was this newfound appreciation for something that I really hadn't been introduced to. And so it was 
the absolute gutsy, raw grittiness of the beats that I absolutely loved. I love the fact that Whitman tried to, you know, it's trying to bring every last bit of his world into everything that he wrote. Um, I love the everyday sort of um, Frank O'Hara's lunch poems Mm -hmm. that are as simple as about him watching construction workers on their lunch break, you know, and then him having not even necessarily some sort of an epiphany, but the fact that that moment in and of itself is enough, you know, um, I, and I, I think it was just eye opening for me also coming from, coming from a background in biochem and forensics, right, where right. everything is empirical. There is, it's the answer is this, and how you get there are these 10 steps, you know, and yeah. everything is, it's, everything is, you know, with science, everything is just so cut and dry yeah. that to be able to come to a, a degree that where now everything is subjective, the, the meaning of any given poem is what you take from the poem, you as an individual you know, there are some things that might be kind of hard and fast with it, but for the most part, if I can point to something in the poem and say, it means this to me, I'm, I'm not wrong. Right. Right. So I think that that, that lent itself as well. So what was the gateway? Cause there you are doing the biochem forensic thing. How does that even cross your path? How do, how does poetry, how does writing, how does literature even cross your path when that was your headspace uh well i thought i wanted to go into like forensic investigation csi kind of cool crime scene shit sure and had you know i'd made it through organic chem one and two i was in this particular uh semester my last semester i was in a recombinant rna lecture and it literally was three hours of sitting in a classroom that was sub ground level um, small windows up top and spring was springing out the window. And I had been working in a pathology lab at a local hospital, which included working in the morgue doing autopsies and had, had a, a, a couple of profound experiences there that I, I just, between that particular lecture, the time of year, and some of the experiences I had doing autopsies, I just realized that I didn't want to be sort of faced with mortality every day, you yeah. know, yeah. Um, as fascinating as it was. And as much as I enjoyed studying it, I didn't want to be stuck in a, a lab the rest of my life. And so creative writing happened to be the, the, the polar opposite that was like, all right, that's that's what I'll do. So you just like looked at the course catalog and were like, hey, that looks 180 degrees opposite. I went, I left after the lecture was done. I sat through the rest of the lecture. I walked over to academic advisement and changed majors. I said, I want to go into creative writing. And I managed to fool a couple of professors into letting me in to their classes. I think two, three of them. Um and dropped a couple of labs and yeah, I just marched on from there. 
did you ever write anything about the morgue and about your time look starting down that path of forensics there's one poem i think there's really only one poem that i've written about being in the morgue there are aspects of it um oh i can't even remember which one it is there's one about let me see if i uh that i i know how to speak to the living and the dead mm, yep um still madman still a madman i was gonna ask you about that yeah i think that's yes yeah so i was gonna ask you where that came from that, okay um like hands in the belly of a body in a hospital morgue exposing yeah. inertia's last call it's a wonder we exist at all. You know, there's elements that find their way in, but there's only one poem that I really wrote and it's not in here. Um, it's, it was called uh, still life and I have it. I'll, I'll hold on a second. Let me see if I can actually find it real quick because. How many poems um, do you have that didn't make it into the book? Do you have just shit tons? Do you have like thousands that are just Let me, out there? Uh, well, okay. So to give you an example, this was just in grad school. Um, this was uh, holy shit. just in grad school after. So this is spring 2002. So from uh, fall of 2001 to the end of 2002 that's how many wow that's how much i had written wow um so that's just grad school there's like uh three and a half inch floppy disks that are full of stuff that i can't access anymore there's some there's file uh, file folders i have hard copies of stuff um yeah, actually, and here's, you'll get a kick out of this. One second. You get a tour of my office. This is, you'll be the first podcast to see this, actually. I've talked about <laughs> if only we did this on YouTube as well. I know this would really have an impact. Um this is wow. my stack of rejection letters and rejection slips. <laughs> when that's some ambition. Send, wow. When you yeah. had to send in poetry via the mail. Hard copy. Yeah. With Holy a 10 shit. and a half, with a, a 10 self-addressed stamped envelope and all that other good stuff. Why'd you, why'd you keep all of them? Why'd you keep all the rejection letters? It's a, it's a point of pride. It's a, it shows progress, you know? Um, I don't know. I, it's just something that I, it's, it's great to look back on and just mm. to sort of, I don't know, remind myself of the work that I've put in, you know, I lose sight of it, you know, too quickly at times. Um and, you know, I'm my own worst critic and really hard on myself. So to every now and again to remember 
the hard work that that yeah. I did, you know. Does it does it does it mean something to be writing a free range American every day and think back when you got rejected from other magazines and now you actually have a position where you get to write every day and your work is constantly being out there? It does mean it does mean a lot. Um I I never would have thought that I'd, you know, I'd be the 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 main scribe for a, a daily outdoor magazine. Um I had at one point I wanted to write the outdoor column for our local newspaper once our our outdoor columnist retired. Um, that was a long time ago and he's still alive and writing. So <laughs> that's still not, not in the cards, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely, it means a lot to, to be able to write about things that people find, you know, they, they value, um, writing in a space about things that I value as well. Yeah. Uh, hunting, fishing, conservation, different things along that line. So, yeah. Sure. Sure. Let's let's pivot into um, your early adulthood. Then, why did you join the army? Uh, honestly, I had no, I had no idea what I wanted to do in my life. I I enlisted uh, delayed entry, enlisted the fall of my senior year in eighty nine, and finished in ninety seven. Um, I knew I didn't want to go to college. I didn't know anything beyond that. I figured I just, I try to see the world or just go and serve my country. I had wrestled in high school and I was kind of turned into a, um, you know, pretty capable by the time I was a senior, pretty capable, physically capable. And I was pretty, I was, I was street smart more than book smart at the, right. you know, at right. the time. Basic training was awesome. I loved it. Um, and yeah, so I, I, that's pretty much why I enlisted. Unfortunately, the circumstances being in, I didn't wind up getting, um, wasn't able to move ahead. Like I had set goals for myself too. Um, with, you know, it, it has to do with some leadership issues, um, being in a non-combat MOS, and you know having a blue collar work ethic so they i wasn't allowed to go to schools or <clears throat> change because i was doing too much good work so um what did you want to do what was your career what did you want your career path to be in the military i i wanted to go you know into special ops whether it was you know ranger school or go sf um i had earned a spot at Warren Officer Flight Canada School to fly combat helicopters twice, but my CO wouldn't sign off on sending me. Um, I just wanted, I wanted like all in, just fucking send me, you know, and unfortunately my non-combat MOS just wouldn't, was just in the way. What, so, was, what was your, I thought you were a combat engineer, right? I was a combat engineer to start. And then when, I, um, I switched from that to go active to go, um, during the first desert war, they, I, the only thing that was available was 55 Bravo. So I was an ammunition specialist. Gotcha. So I just moved, I moved ammo to and from the middle yep. East 
<clears throat> from Germany. So how, when you look back on your military, on your time in the military, are you satisfied? Are you content with it? Do you have regrets? Are you like, well, that probably it sucked at the time, but it worked out for the best because I'm happy how things turned out. What, what what's your what's your rear view mirror on the? Your, I'd say it's probably the latter. You know, yeah. there's it, it, it could have turned out completely different. You know, had I put my foot down, maybe had I known enough, I was. I mean, I was young. I didn't. I didn't know my ass from my elbow. I'd say probably my biggest re- regret is that I didn't travel more while I was in Germany. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I had all sorts, you know, you could go to, you could fly to Barcelona, space a for 89 bucks. And I didn't take advantage of it. I was the dummy that was drinking fast beer and staying out all night. Yeah. So. You talked before about being in DC when nine 11 happened, did nine 11, what did that mean to you as an army veteran where suddenly, you know, after, I mean, aside from the Gulf war and, you know, Haiti, Kosovo, what have you. But now suddenly there was a hot war that was that had just broken out literally on your doorstep. Did that mean anything to you? Did you have regret? Did you were you tempted to rejoin and sign back up? What was your thought process when that went on? Um I had for I turned 20, let me think. I was 23 when I got out, when I, 23 or 24. So I had for about a decade, I had, I had thoughts back and forth about re-enlisting. By the time 9-11 came around, I didn't, the, the thought of re-enlisting was kind of fleeting and it was only because we had just started you know, my, we were expecting our first, uh, child. Um, my experience was such that, you know, going back in, I didn't know if I was going to be able to do, Mm. you know, or even what I wanted to do at that point. Um, I knew that I knew that the, the world had completely changed at that point. And I think I was, I was, I think I was really, I was just numb and I didn't know. Um, I don't think I knew what really to do moving forward. I knew that where I was, um, you know, f- finishing grad school and, and what have you, I think I, I knew that I had my hands full sort of enough with that and that I wasn't really <laughs> capable of making many sound decisions other than kind of staying where I was. So, um, yeah, I just, I don't know. There was just a lot of, there was a lot of things going on in my life at that time that I, I kind of felt like I couldn't, I couldn't walk away from Yeah, um, in order to be able to like to reenlist and, and go fight. And everything was such a, I mean, everything was, it was all based on, you know, bin Laden. And it was all based on just, you know, we're ferreting out, you know, this one human. And there was still this big giant question mark on what the hell are we going to do? And, and even with, even with, you know, sort of, 
the global war on terror being de- declared, it was it was still so ambiguous. It was so, you know, it was so foreign to me as a 20, you know, 23-year-old, 24-year-old. Actually, no, I take that back. Now I was at the, shit, that was 2000. Yeah, I was close to 30. I was like, I might have just turned 30 years old or 29 years old. My viewpoint had just in general had had changed a bit from what I, where I was when I was 17, you know, um, and yeah, I I just I it, there wasn't a burning desire to go back in. I don't think I had a burning desire really mm-hmm. about about much. Honestly, I think I was just sort of in a in a a lost place what it seems like from the writing um that was in the book about your your time in the army you liked fighting yeah do you still no no but i know it's still it's still just under Mm -hmm. the surface do you have Uh, a temper you know, I did. I don't, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm, you know, I have finally got some things managed. Like I said, I'm in this much mm-hmm. of a world instead of. Right. Um, but I definitely, there are times when I think people sense, fuck, I shouldn't have said that to him or no, 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 we can make this right. You know, diff- there's different things, that, I guess, the way I carry myself. You know, yeah, yeah. I think you don't you don't necessarily lose that. Um, there's a there's there's just a I don't know if it's a confidence or 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 what, you know, people are. I think that they can just sense mm-hmm. you, you, you just don't. You, this isn't a guy you're going to, you know, you mess with. Um, but I wrestle with every now and again. You know, the, 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 the feeling of I'm going to explode right now. And (laughs) so, no, I don't, I, I don't, I don't fight anymore. Um, I think I put my, my powers to better use. So (laughs) do you, do you ever miss just the unfettered raw, pure act of violence though? Is there ever moments where you're like, man, to just lose control for a second is pretty tempting. Or is it really just at this point, not so much of a thing? No, there's definitely, there's definitely the temptation that's there. I mean, it's the same with, it, it falls into the same category as addiction. Yeah. Yeah. It would be just, it would be very easy to just get, you know, uh, a fifth of bourbon. Right. And just go and, and pick a fight or just be, you know, in harm's way, it would be easy, but I've, I've I, you know, I guess it's just maturity and what have you, or just time away from it and seeing how futile it is. Right. Right. Uh, I realize there's, there's a lot more on the other side, the consequences of that, you know, far outweigh any, any sort of, I guess, daydream about mm-hmm. 
someone's face in or whatever, right. you know. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make a leap here that might be completely unwarranted, but I'm just kind of curious when because you got out before 9-11 and then obviously you've stayed in the veteran community um you know working at black rifle and, and free range american and all that but having been somebody that was you know that had capability to fight mm-hmm. and enjoyed it do you, is there any part of you even if it's just intellectual even if you don't feel it but is there a part of you that kind of recognizes that there's an itch that went unscratched you know that you didn't get into the fight so there was never that you know you you wrestled you got in a bunch of brawls you never got to kick in a door like is there is there a part of you that feels that or even if it's just intellectual or are you like no i'm good i'm solid i like really don't give a shit i had enough brawls i'm good didn't need any more scars i think i there's definitely for a long time there was there was the, you know, an itch that went on scratch. Um, I think it was part of being around um, the soft community with Black Rifle and just the, you know, the universe of folks that are involved. Sure. There. I think I struggled more with the fact that almost like imposter syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. And it took a while for me to, to sort of talk myself out of that tree and be like, no, I fucking served. I, you know, I, I signed on the line and I went and, and I served. I didn't, I didn't go to war like those guys. I didn't have the experience that that they did. Um, I would have in, you know, in my sort of my original iteration of who I was when I went in. But um, but it took a while to get to get past that and to realize, you know, they the their experiences and, and what have you are. Um, there's a lot of a lot of heroism there's a lot of um i think for those that don't necessarily know about it i think there's a lot of glorification Mm -hmm. around it but at the end of the day you know these um these humans they put themselves in harm's way they said yes to the the exceedingly difficult jobs and missions the those that made it home are you know they're they're lucky to be home and it's fantastic to have them home they definitely are you know they've carried home a lot more than they carried over there um but they're human just like the rest of us and their experiences while um terrible in so many instances terrifying um and unimaginable for most people i mean even even myself you know um other people's experiences are equally as terrifying in Mm -hmm. in other ways Mm -hmm. um and i think that we just 
it can't be a comparison about who is suffering worse or who has been through the worse. It's, I think at the end of the day, for me, it was, it, it, the realization was that I, I am, I respect their experience. I am grateful for their service. And for me as, you know, working with veterans and stuff like that, whether it was through healing waters or, um, just in other, in other avenues, like, or, um, thrashing raid and other skateboarding veteran skateboarding mm-hmm. uh, organization six feet above, excuse me, they're, uh, skateboarding and trying to, um, combat veteran suicides. Right. That's my way of continuing to serve and understanding that, you know, more often than not, these guys just need, they need an outlet. They need a, they need somebody to talk to or something that gives them the opportunity to get us outside of their own head. Um, and to be able to, you know, to be as whole as they can be again. Um, so I, I still wrestle with the fact that, you know, I wish I could have, I wish I could have done what I set out to do when I was in the service, but, um, I also know that I, there's a distinct chance that I wouldn't be on the planet now. Right. <laughs> and right. I, right. you know, got that opportunity. Right. And I think that, um, you know, giving myself the, the grace of saying, you know, recognizing I did serve and I was in, and I was in during, you know, a pretty volatile, you know, the begin. it was sort of the underpinnings of right. what led to nine 11, you know, and, um, and just, just realizing that, you know, what I did is not any less than necessarily what, what others have done. So, yeah, it's a, it's a balance. No, it, it absolutely is. And I think it's, it's certainly nothing that's unique to you. I, I mean, I don't know anyone that doesn't suffer from imposter syndrome. Everybody, nobody thinks they did enough. Right. <laughs> it's a big joke. Nobody can, nobody can ever do enough. You know, right. everybody's always going to have, there's always that demon that wants to tempt you with inferiority. Um, you seem incredibly well balanced though. You seem like you're very at peace and I know looks can be deceiving, but it seems like you've rounded a corner and, and if there was much of a corner to round, but it does definitely doesn't, you're not somebody that's to me reeks of insecurity. Uh, you seem like you're very confident in what you do, what your capabilities are and where your life has gone. Um, do you feel that way? I think I, I think I'm comfortable with who I am. Um, I'm comfortable with the steps that I've, the path that I've taken to get here or the path that I've followed to get here. Um, I, there's always, excuse me, there's always, you know, you aspire to be more or do more um, things along that line. I think for me, I definitely, you know, I want to be, a better writer. I definitely would like to write more. Um, I want to continue to be able to spend the, the time that I do with my, my fiance and, um, and, you know, time with my kids and, you know, with her kids and family and, 
be able to spend time outdoors. I just, I, I think more than anything, my confidence lies in the fact that I am, I am happy with who I am and knowing that I'm still going to push to, to be better, you know, um, in all aspects of my life. I don't think I'll ever be completely like I'm done. Yeah. 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 I'm good. Yeah. 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 Um, I have, I have zero retirement, so I'm not, I'm not resting on those, those laurels anytime soon. Um, and that's, that's fine by me. I'm, I'm okay with what I'm capable of and know that at the end of the day, things will, they'll work out one way or the other. So, um, no, I'm, I'm content with who I am and where, you know, where I've come from. Where are you weak as a writer? Do you think when you look at your craft and and your skill set, what is it you want to work on? Where, what, what is pushing you? What's driving you? What's the, what's the itch right now? I think it's just productivity. Mm. I think it's making, making the time and just, and just writing as much as possible. I think that's my, that's my biggest, uh, my biggest hurdle as a writer. What's next then? So you said you have ideas coming off of revisions of a man. So what, what are you looking to do? What's going to be the most fulfilling for you? I think, I think giving myself a project, identifying a, you know, a project, whether it's, you know, writing a bunch of short stories. I've been reading a lot lately. That's something that I have been doing. So Tom McGuane, um, been reading some Steinbeck, um, you know, there's just a, a bunch of, there's some poetry, different things like that. I've been, I've been trying to, to feed a bit more, more Hemingway, um, and just, just hearing other voices, mm. you know, paying attention to how it is that, you know, paying attention to their craft as much as the story itself. So, um, I think there's, I think I'm going to wind up giving myself some, giving myself a project or two to, to kind of chip away against. Um, honestly, I think short story is probably my next, what I try to tackle next. Um, I think poetry will always, there'll always be, I think there'll always be poetry. I don't know if I necessarily have another like collection in me anytime soon. Unless something, something really all of a sudden just, you know, congeals, but, um, but yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, I'll, um, I'll wind up writing a little bit more, more long form. I just got like, I got to give myself a project, something to work towards. When you, uh, one thing I don't want to leave completely untouched is your time in advertising. Do you feel like poetry helped you be a better ad man, your <laughs> writing, your ability to conceptualize. Did it ask wizard? Yeah. Yeah. I'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I, as a matter of fact, that was the, that was probably my biggest bone of contention when I first, like I said, when I first got into advertising, I was uh business development and an account exec. Um, I, I was given no, 
no credence whatsoever being a poet like that had nothing to do with advertising in their eyes i had zero experience with writing copy uh, because i'd never written an ad you know i'd never written a headline Mm. um but I, when I finally, like three years in, I finally, I got our executive creative director to um, agree to give me an opportunity to prove myself as a copywriter. And if I could, then I could join the writing core. Well, I went from, sorry, I went from a business development manager and account exec account exec to assistant account exec to junior copywriter. And when I finally, I had, I had proven to him by writing, I would write for existing clients of ours, but I would write stuff that only he and our, our regular creative director saw the clients never saw my work. It was always like, here's the assignment. Let's see what you can do with it. And then my stuff just stayed in a pile over here. Um, but everyone would say, yeah, poetry has nothing to do with writing. And I would take a stand and I would say, I bet you that I could write a better billboard headline that has to be seven words or less than you can in 20 years of advertising or headline for a print ad, you know, and looking at it conceptually. I mean, that's, the art of poetry, right? It's the, it, it's the art of pairing away. It is economy of words. So um, I think it, there was a lot of elements that I needed to learn, you know, sorry, it's not Santa. That's my dog. <laughs> neck. Um, there was a lot that I had to learn in the, in the ad world. And I was a, an, a student of, you know, advertising from the time I got in till um, the time I, I went from freelance as a copywriter and strategist and creative director. And I wound up getting a job as a director of communications for the Fly Fishing Trade Association. But I I just was always trying to learn, always trying to be better, always trying to conceptualize, you know, really push the boundaries and, and find ways where things could just work together together better you know but i've written i've written everything from um 60 second television sort of these sort of um epic brand level television ads all the way down to the advertising copy on the back of atm receipts for banks yeah yeah. yeah. And everything in between. Well, it's funny because I know that I, I think it was Leo Jenkins first book or some, some, I can't remember which dead reckoning book it was, but that book where, it, you know, they kind of famously said poets got smart and became songwriters. Um, but I, I think there's, I think advertising is an un kind of undiscovered country for poets. I think that's a natural, there is a natural segue there and that a successful poet can find pretty lucrative day job, you know, doing ad copy, you know, I mean, it's not a apples to apples, you know, right. You know, transition, but I, I but I feel like there is a lot of overlap there. Um, where'd you work? What, what firm did you work at in the city? 
Uh, I worked at, so I was actually in Rochester, not okay. New York. City. Oh, okay. Uh, All right. So I worked at uh, Roberts Communications to start and then Jay Advertising. Um, I had a few hitches with them back and forth. And then I just did freelance and for seven years. So I've been, it was probably what, 16 years, including my freelance time. Wow. Wow. Um, and would you recommend it as a, as a day job, especially for a writer? Uh, yeah. I mean, if you like, if you like variety, mm. you know, working for a number of different clients, I think it's, I think it's a good, it's, it's a good gig. Um, you've got to be okay with, uh, a lot of different type A personalities, you right. know, just right. Because there's that is what the the you know the ad world is is rife with them, um, and you kind of have to be in order for your ideas to be you know to really be heard. Um, but you have to. The other thing is is that you've got you've got to be willing to you know sort of um, have your lunch eaten for a while. You know, you got to be willing to do to 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 write the copy on the back of ATM receipts. Right. Right. And do that for a while, you know, before you're able to get in and and do the the glitzy, you know, where's the 60 second television stuff, you know, be on be on set in, you know, another city or whatever, shooting for a bank or shooting for automotive or whatever. So, um yeah, it just it, it you 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 need to be as motivated as possible, but as patient as possible at the same time. Uh, it's it's the long game for sure. Did you, uh, again, just something else I don't want to leave untouched. Do you think you'll return to filmmaking after a deliberate life? I know it's been a couple of years, but is that something you always aspire to do? Is get back to that? Oh. Uh, you know, I might, I might, but it'd have to be the right, it'd have to be the right topic, the right subject. Um, and nothing is really, nothing has necessarily struck me as something that's a bit mm. more on that long form side. Mm. I've had a couple of, like I did a, a trail running video since then uh, with a couple of friends of mine that wound up making the, the, a number of different um, film festivals, but you know, the things that I love to do, you know, hunting and fishing and things like that, I probably won't make, you know, do anything in those realms because it's so saturated. Mm. And I think it's all about, it's like hunting and fishing porn now, you know, yeah, yeah. the biggest animals or the biggest fish or the most exotic places or things like that, where, I'm a storyteller, you know, I want to talk about what's going on behind, behind the scenes um, and why it's important being there in the first place is important. Right. Let alone, you, you know what you catch or kill. So it's personal uh, storytelling, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not the flash. Yeah. 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 So, so we'll see. I mean, I'd, I'd like to, but I think that, that I tried for a long time to really look at doing other their film projects and things like that. And nothing really ever stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, so I almost feel like deliberate life was kind of a, that was kind of a, 
another one where, all right, I did this and I sort of cleared those decks and it opened up to some other things. And now, you know, I've written this book and it's cleared some more decks. Um, I'm not sure what's, I'm not sure what's next. I think maybe, maybe just focusing more and more on, on my own health and on being, being present, you know, um, and enjoying what the hell that I've got, you know, that's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's that that's, um, go figure. I'm going to find out a way I'm going to figure out a way to shoehorn Woody Allen into a conversation with you. But you know, that was (laughs) Woody Allen's deconstructing Harry, um, where or deconstructing Henry, Henry, Harry, can't remember anyway, where he, where Harry, that was it, where he, uh, the whole movie is about the conflict between being a good artist or being a good or living a good life. And the end of it, it's like his, his rival who he basically bests, you know, ends up with the hot chick and a great marriage and all this. He's like, look, I'll never be the artist. You are. I put my art into my life. I don't put it into my, my writing. I think there is a natural tension there and it's, um, it's great to be able to have both, but yeah, there is definitely a dichotomy between the two. Um, Matt, it's a great book. I don't think I said that up front. I didn't flatter you up front, but I'll do it here at the at the end. Um, it's a I it's a great piece that. of work. Yeah, it really enjoyable. I read it in one sitting. Um, to be honest, uh, and I'm not just saying this so Ken Dow gets gets a giggle out of it, but I do that a lot with Dead Reckoning books. I find them very um, easy to read, but this was no exception. It was a great piece of work. I am a city kid. My understanding of the outdoors is limited to my army time, and right. that wasn't much. Uh, so it's not my world. And the fact that you made me um, completely uh, encompassed in that world and aware of it and able to process what the um, allure is, and I just mm-hmm. want to—I just want to, by way of complimenting you, I just want to point out some of the pieces that I found incredibly insightful. Uh, if I can find where I here, when you hold an Alaskan salmon, mm. I think is a great ode for, for a city kid. And I'll say that for any other city kids out there um, to understand the outdoorsman mindset. I thought that was one of the best pieces I've ever read. And that's not a mindset that comes naturally to me. I thought you just, it's um, I, yeah, I thought it was a great piece. And I think it was something Thank that you. your personal experience makes it universal so that people with, any number of different experiences can appreciate it. Um, I loved Carry Me River. I loved the Mississippi. I loved your love of the Mississippi. I thought that was just fascinating itself. Um, and um, it, there, there are many, and I won't just list them because people listening should go and read the book, buy it, and they'll see the work for themselves. But um, I can't wait to see what else you come up with, man. I look forward I to, to the next projects. Yeah. And thanks for doing this, and thanks for being so flexible and adjusting fire so many times as the CCP no fucked up my health. So yeah. Yeah. Um, dude, it's a pleasure. Come back and, um, and talk with us again, will you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. That was the savage wonder of Matt Smythe. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. I can't wait to have Matt back on the show. Um, one of the upsides of inviting him on the show is, uh, talk to him and we will have selections as many as he'll let us um, from him featured on the literary blog going forward. Certainly this week uh, while we're 
talking about his show, his episode on the podcast, but also um, going forward, uh, you know, I look forward to integrating his work with the rest of the poets and writers that we like to feature daily on our blog. Um, so, something to look forward to. Okay, um, housekeeping that we should talk about. So, <clears throat> I'm trying to project in the future because obviously I'm recording this a little bit before you guys are hearing it. What should you guys know? On October 13th at SUNY Rockland, we will be doing a workshop performance of a brand new play by Savage Wonder podcast guest Anton Sattler. Uh, his play Local Gods won second place in our inaugural full-length playwriting competition. Uh, you guys may remember that episode. If you don't, by all means, go back and re-listen to it. Very interesting dude. Very talented writer. And we're going to be workshopping his play at SUNY Rockland. What that means is we will be rehearsing it all day. We will do a performance that night at 7 p.m. And then when the performance is done, we will open it up for audience feedback. Um, so obviously veterans are very helpful because that's a little bit of dramaturgy, being able to kind of give us feedback, what smelled right, what felt right. Um, and theater folk, folks that know theater, everyone is welcome and everyone is welcome to give feedback. Um, but certainly if I had to pick two general categories of people, um, those are two groups that, that uh, you know, we'd value input from, but we'll value input from everybody. And if nothing else, it gives you a chance <coughs> to see how the sausage is made, you know, and get, get a little behind the scenes uh, view of a play in development. And um, we'll see how much or how little surgery needs to happen with the play. Um, you'll see the actors trying out these roles for the first time and, and uh, giving us a good look at what this, uh, what the play is going to be like. I think it's the first time that Anton has heard the play read from top to bottom out loud by actors. You know, I'm sure he muttered it to himself in reading it, but um, yeah, I think it's the, I believe that's right. So um, very exciting for him. I'm excited for him to get that feedback and um, yeah, we'll develop it from there. So that's October 13th. If you're in the greater New York area, um, by all means, stop on down to SUNY Rockland. We'll be at their cultural arts theater, which is a gorgeous space. We checked it out the other week on a site visit and uh, they um, Chris Plummer and the, the crew over there could just couldn't be better folks and super supportive. And uh, we're excited to do that there. And um, yeah, it's great to be in a college campus to the energy, you know, the, the feedback, the enthusiasm. Um, yeah. Just very excited about what all that will entail. Okay. So that's that. What else do you need to know? The parlor obviously is back in full swing. Uh, as you're listening to this right now, we are in the last few weeks or last week-ish of admissions, the Josh Harmon play, um, which is you know very much social satire and is uh, I've, I've seen at least one performance right now of it, uh, our, of our performance doing it, and it's uh, it's great it's such a great play and the actors are incredible they do such a great job with it audiences 
just love it. Um, so if you haven't, if you're around the area in the next week or so, by all means, come out and see it. But once admissions ends, we go into 39 steps, which is a comedy spoof, uh, you know, won the 2007, I believe Tony award for best play. Uh, it's a hilarious take spoof on, on Hitchcock and Hitchcock movies. Um, incredibly complicated to do. It's four actors playing, I believe it's 250 roles. Uh, it is an insane piece of theater when you fully mount it. To do it like we do as a staged reading in an intimate space is insane. It makes no sense. And we have knocked ourselves out to do it. Well, we haven't yet. We're about to. Obviously, I'm recording this in advance. But we're about to knock ourselves out to put that on. If you are anywhere close to Cornwall, New York, during the month of October, you owe it to yourself to come see this show. Uh, what we've done is basically we have brought in a live Foley who is going to do live sound effects because, you know, obviously it's a spoof of a Hitchcock film, right? And when you fully mount it, you've got train sequences and chase scenes and fights and car crashes and all kinds of crazy stuff. And that's kind of the fun of the play is staging all of it, um, you know, doing all that on stage. To do it as a staged reading with no props and a whatever it is, you know, five foot by three foot stage in a 16 seat space is ludicrous. So we're doing everything with like minimal hints of costuming. So you can tell which characters are which since the characters are constantly changing. Again, four actors, 250 roles. And then the everything else will be sound effects. So the Foley's going to be there popping balloons and crunching gravel and doing all the rest of it. It's, uh, I mean, I, I, I was hating myself for having picked this play. Um, once we got into July, August, and I started playing this out, I was like, son of a bitch, why did I pick this play? Um, but it's been a happy accident. It's forced us to bring in the live Foley, create a Foley box, uh, create you know sound design capabilities in, in this in this super intimate space. And I think it's going to be a feature, not a bug going forward. I think it's going to be something we're going to try to integrate into every show. Um, obviously, we only have one more show in the season after 39 Steps. We have uh, the Dudley Moore, Peter Cook comedy, Good Evening. But next season, when we have only veteran plays going up, uh, I think there's going to be ample opportunity to do um, sound effects for them. So this will be something that we do going forward. I think it'll be a very cool dimension. It's just something you don't see uh, ever in the theater um, anymore. So to do that, I think it's going to be really fun and I'm excited to see how it plays out in October. So definitely come check that out if you are in the area. Okay. That's all the shameless plugging I have to do for right now. Uh, if you're listening to us on iTunes, as always, we would deeply appreciate your five-star review. Say whatever you want to us or about us, but if you just put five stars, attach that to your comments, that would mean a lot. Um, as always, we'd appreciate any follows on Instagram or Facebook on Facebook. It's at veterans repertory theater on Instagram. It's at vet rep theater. And, um, yeah, I think that's all the housekeeping we need to talk about. My thanks as always to our producer, Michael Neal, who knocks himself out to get this, these episodes ready for us each week. 
I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of Veterans Repertory Theater, see you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.